Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Next at Microsoft podcast, a series of conversations about technology, innovation, and the future of Microsoft. My name is David Chen, and joining us today, we have two guests. John Porter is Vice President of Innovation and Development at AccuWeather. John blends his background in both meteorology and IT to collaborate with the world's leading government meteorological services and other key data providers to acquire top-tier weather information and content to integrate the most advanced weather data and technologies. John Porter, thanks so much for joining us today on the Next at Microsoft podcast. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, joining us also is Drew Purvis, head of the Computational Ecology and Environmental Science Group at Microsoft Research. Drew's research has led to over 30 publications in peer-reviewed journals, including Science, PNAS, and Global Change Biology. Drew Purvis, welcome to the Next at Microsoft podcast. Hi, David. Thank you. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for both being here today. Let's start with breaking in stories, which we like to do on the Next at Microsoft podcast. John, how did you get started in the field of meteorology and predictive weather research? Uh, I've had uh, weather interest uh, for a long, long time. And in fact, I have a, uh, a photo up here in my office at AccuWeather that shows uh, an article about me making predictions for snowfall. That was my favorite thing to forecast when I was about 12 years old. So weather for me <laughs> has been a lifelong passion. And I've been lucky to be involved in almost every aspect of what we do here at AccuWeather over the years. Why do you think weather holds such a, a fascination or at least predicting the weather does? Well, I think uh, it's something that has a, a huge impact on society. So I think that uh, the power of Mother Nature is something that a lot of people get interested in at a young age. And uh, we have the predictive capability to be able to provide early notification to people when there's going to be a high impact or dangerous weather event. And so that uh, is very much part of our DNA here at AccuWeather in terms of helping people improve their lives. Well, Drew Purvis, you're the head of the Computational Ecology and Environmental Science Group at Microsoft. Um, how did you get started in ecology and what brought you to Microsoft? Well, I also started at quite a young age, but my uh, route into getting interested in the real world, real ecological systems like forests and farms and fisheries that we study today was through computers. I was part of that generation. From about age seven, I was programming in BASIC on a Commodore 64 and all that stuff. Nice. And then a few years later, there was this emerging discipline called artificial life, which is all about programming up interesting simulations of lifelike processes in a computer, because the computers were kind of getting fast enough for the first time to do that. Life's quite complex, you know. And then that was kind of my springboard. It was quite an abstract discipline, looking at perhaps how life could be in the abstract sense, rather than how it happens to be on Earth. But then the more and more I learned about actually how life is on Earth, I found that that was actually really, really interesting. So I went on to study ecology at university at Cambridge in the UK, then went on to do a PhD, and then on to Princeton as a postdoc for a number of years. And it was all very much anchored in the real world, but I still had that interest in, in the computational side, building models and simulation models of these things. So then the opportunity to come back to Microsoft and join the ecology and environmental science group was really coming full circle, you know. So now most of my colleagues are actually computer scientists and kind of similar sort of, if you like, geeky history to myself, you know, but we've kept this interest in trying to uh, build simulation models of, of actual real life processes, the ones that go on around us every day. Excellent. Well, when people think of Microsoft and even Microsoft Research, they probably don't think of ecological modeling. So why do you feel Microsoft Research has an ecology group and what do you feel like its mission is? I think that's a really interesting question. I think that the main thing to understand is that for over two decades now, Microsoft has had this blue skies research division, Microsoft Research. And right from the beginning, the idea was you bring in researchers in interesting areas that might 
potentially be important to Microsoft, but then you give them the freedom to just research and, and you know, follow their brains and follow their passions, etc. So around eight years ago, Microsoft Research decided to start a group in ecology and environmental science, which is the group I'm in now, I think because they thought environmental sustainability was important, ideas of green tech, but also because that's an area actually which really pushes some of the boundaries in terms of big data, complex mashups of different geotemporal data, for example, machine learning, predictions, etc., which of course are increasingly part of the the more mainstream technology story now. So I think it's partly the actual area, ecology and environmental science, and it's partly because in pursuing that area, you naturally then push some of these boundaries. Um, so the mission of our group for many years now has been to try to build predictive models of different aspects of the, the Earth system. So in the same way that AccuWeather predicts the weather, we've been trying to predict a lot of things that depend on weather, things like the growth and death of forests or algal blooms in the oceans or agricultural productivity under climate change, things like that. Drew, uh, I heard this rumor that your group has modeled all life on Earth. Is that accurate? We've been talking about complex systems. How is that even possible? We do indeed have this model. It's called the Maddingly model. We built it in collaboration with the United Nations Environment Programme. So we had some joint scientists in between us. And we had to think about which ecological principles are we going to put in the model, the level of complexity of the model, and you name it. But we now have this giant virtual simulator of every... It's not all quite all life on Earth, so it's only the multicellular stuff. So it's it starts with the very smallest little aphids and thrips all the way up to, you know, uh, wolves and uh, whales and, and sharks and jellyfish and you name it. So all that stuff's in there. And we have all of these virtual animals living in this giant simulation and they're chasing each other, eating each other, living their lives, you know, giving birth and all the rest. And, and so we set this thing uh, spinning. Of course, weather is a key input to this thing. So it affects uh, the way individuals metabolize and lose body fat. It affects the way the plants grow and develop. And so it affects the amount of food that's available as leaves for the herbivores. And it affects the warm and cold-blooded animals differently because they have different thermal tolerances. So all of this stuff's going on in the model. And, and so we spin this thing up and it runs. And what emerges are the structure and function of ecosystems in the land and the sea across the whole world. So it's a really exciting project intellectually. And we're amazed at how many known aspects of the real world emerge out of this model. Um, having said that, there's a real key difference that I want to run this down, which is that that's the one exception in our group of a model that hasn't been properly anchored against data yet. It's such a complex model. And so for us, the next phase is a real challenge there, saying how do we go from an exciting, interesting simulation to a model that we can really make sort of those defensible predictions with. And, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if we've got something to learn from AccuWeather because, you know, their models, models of the weather system like those guys deal with are very complex. And so they've got a lot of experience of anchoring those against data. And um, that's what we need to do for our very complex model of uh, all life on Earth. Right. Fascinating. John, can you explain AccuWeather's mission and why predictive weather analysis is so critical for you? Sure. Um, our mission is uh, really powerfully and simply stated, AccuWeather personalizes the weather so people can improve their lives. And uh, with so many users all around the world, uh, that means different things to different people. So uh, that means that we're providing the information that people need to make decisions and tailored specifically to their lives. Uh, so the important critical nature of this all ties around the fact of what's at stake, really from extreme weather, and that's uh, people's lives and, and livelihoods. Is there a time that you can recall during your professional life where 
some work that you've done has made a concrete difference in someone's life where someone has written to you explaining that, for instance? Every day we get those type of letters about all kinds of different situations from uh, tropical storms and hurricanes and typhoons to big snowstorms. So we get all of that kind of feedback from users and it's something that we always appreciate. So yeah, those kind of things happen each and every day and it's something we're very proud of using our science and uh, technology background as well as uh, modern technology in order to provide users all over the world that type of information. Well, speaking of technology and science, uh, you deal with massive quantities of data and you need to parse out what it means and draw conclusions. I'm wondering, how do you manage that from a technological standpoint and from like a personal psychological standpoint? How do you manage uncertainty and how do you communicate that to people? So that's a, an important question for us. We use so many different sources of data in our work. Although one of the things I often point out is that I think sometimes big data can be a little bit misunderstood because some of the data sets we use are huge in terms of you know petabytes or gigabytes and so on. But often the real challenge for us is dealing with a large variety of different kinds of data so that when we try to build one of these models, let's say we're trying to predict uh, the response of wheat production around the world to climate change, we find we need to integrate together various sources like satellite data, but also on the ground data about how the plants are growing, maybe some soil moisture probe data, and actually just the yield data, you know, how much wheat was produced in that field in that year. And then we will specify our models and try to mash all that up in a way that allows us to then make a decent estimate about the future. John, how about you at AccuWeather? I work with governments and other organizations in order to acquire the richest and deepest set of data in real time. And uh, that does bring its uh, set of challenges in terms of being able to uh, to process it quickly, quality control the information. Uh, not all, not every observation is um, has the same characteristics or has the same reliability. So we do a lot of work in understanding the type of content that's available, leveraging it, writing software to process that information from all over the world, and integrating it in real time with our analytics. And that's where uh, where the the power of the cloud. Is has really come in for us is we'd be able to uh, uh, synthesize data much quicker and be able to uh, deliver that information uh, using our technology to users all over the world. What's an example of something that you wouldn't have been able to predict 10 years ago that now you can? So a great example of that, I, I think, from our group is uh, we built a new model of the global carbon cycle. So this predicts how carbon dioxide moves out of the air through the process of photosynthesis in leaves into plants. And those plants allocate that carbon into stems, leaves and roots. Those plants die, the leaves die, that rots down into the soil. The soil then rots and eventually returns that carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. So that process is happening everywhere on Earth where there's vegetation, so everywhere on land. And the future of that carbon cycle is the largest uncertainty in the future of the world's climate at the moment. So if you look at the different predictions of climate change, in some of those models, the Amazon turns into a savanna and all that carbon is released into the air and that becomes a turbo charge on climate change. And in other models, the trees actually soak up ever more carbon. So, so as we go out into the future, we have this enormous uncertainty on the future of the climate that comes from uncertainty in the carbon cycle. So what we were able to do was define a new model of the carbon cycle. Now, plenty out there already and all the models disagreed, but the difference was with us is that we assembled 16 different kinds of data together, mashed this up in this Bayesian methodology, and for the first time produced predictions of the future of the carbon cycle, which are properly anchored in reality against that data. Uh, you're keeping me on the edge of my seat here. What is the fate of the Amazon? <laughs> uh, well, Based uh, on so, your model? Right. So according to our model, it gets better 
up until about 2040 time. And then it turns around. And unfortunately, we didn't hardwire this in. It's just what the data says. Unfortunately, our model does have the Amazon turning into this turbocharger and climate change, which is really bad news. Having said that, it also tells us that the uncertainty on that prediction is huge. So let me ask you, what is a prediction that you've made recently that might be surprising uh, to either yourself or to others who've heard it? We've recently been using a new virtual model of a wheat plant to study how different engineering interventions that we could make into the behaviour of plants could affect food security. And what we found was one of the top ones we looked at didn't really affect the average yield very much at all, which is a surprise, but it did make yields much more robust to droughts, which is also a surprise. So that was great for us. It completely changed our view of how that form of genetic modification might change global food security. It's interesting, those uh, in the uh, predictive capabilities there, I remember uh, early on in my career, I'd, I worked on a project where we were simulating the uh, development of crops and running a crop simulation model and providing detailed weather input into it. And you know, that was really, I think, probably one of my first introductions to this broader earth system modeling effort. And the idea Drew was talking about, about finding predictability in new places and uh, and really that aha moment when, when, uh, when you see something that is uh, now predictable. When you think about our understanding uh, from a science perspective, not even in just the weather space, but when you just think of our human understanding of science and the dynamic interactions that occur, uh, you start thinking about all the different ways that these types of uh, science innovations can be leveraged from a, uh, a modeling standpoint and the kind of real-time data that's now available, increasingly available, and the type of insights that we'll be able to have in the future. It's really key. There's a lot of possibilities here when we talk about being able to bring real-time data from all kinds of sensors and other sources into the cloud, having the compute available right there to be able to perform those real-time analytics. The list goes on and on and on and on. And all these areas are areas that affect our lives in a very impactful way. I think that's a great example here to hear you speaking like that, John, as well, because people talk a lot about these trends like Internet of Things, big data, the cloud, etc. And what John's pointing out there is that if you look at certain areas, important areas of the economy, then you can see this pipeline becomes very real. They're not just buzzwords anymore. These are really real things that are going to transform our lives. And and I think in common, I think with the work we do, what John, I think you're illustrating there really well is that, you know, when you put these things together, you get a number of things from this pipeline. So yes, you can get your live predictive alerts, and that could be alerts for weather affecting people's health, or like in our case, you know, maybe the effect of disease outbreak on food production, or it could even be predicting sales of different things. Mm -hmm. So yes, you get that. But also in going through this process, you get a better understanding and insights about the system. And though you also get better long-term planning capabilities. So the same model you can use to make that prediction over the next one, two, three days can be used to think more long-term about your planning. And then on a more operational level, you get a better understanding about what data should I be collecting? Which of these Internet of Things devices should I be investing in, etc. So going through this process of, of building these models and training them against data gives you so, so much, if you like. And so that's part of what makes it exciting, I think. So we spent a lot of time talking about climate change, food security, diseases. Really, this has been a really uplifting conversation. <laughs> but let me ask you guys this. What problem, you know, are you most passionate about solving personally? Like this data can obviously be used to help the world in some way. You know, is there some issue that you're particularly passionate about? Drew, let's start with you. 
I would love to see our group moving more into this emerging area of agri-tech. I shouldn't say emerging. There's loads of exciting technology already used in agriculture, but there's very much a feeling in the world of agriculture now that these trends, internet of things, big data, predictive analytics, could really take us through some kind of step change there. And I think in the near term, I can see us reducing some of these inefficiencies that we have in our agricultural system. They're huge, about 30 to 50% wastage at the moment on what we grow. So, I mean, that's what's up for grabs, an enormous effect, precision, irrigation, etc. In the longer term, I can also see us, though, combining that kind of top-down view, if you like, with a better understanding of individual plants' biology as a way that we could actually re-engineer the behaviour of individual plants. And even perhaps remote, I've got this idea of remote control plants, for example, so we build in sensors so we can flash light and actually deliberately alter the behaviour of the plants. And so the kind of thing that would happen is, you know, you've got your weather predictions from places like AccuWeather. You then use your plant model to say, how would we like that plant to change its behavior? So we work that out in silico. And then now the challenge is, right, we better send that message to the drone that's flashing the light out to the plants to tell them to grow more roots because AccuWeather says drought's coming. You see mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So in the long run, I know it's a sci-fi scenario, but kind of transforming, fundamentally transforming the way we grow food. That is, is next a... level thinking, sir. Next level. <laughs> I guess so. How about you, John? <laughs> For me personally, I'm very interested in seeing what we can do to provide as much awareness about uh, extreme weather events, especially uh, now as we look in in parts of the world, the developing world, places that are not even used to seeing daily level forecasts. Uh, Sometimes we have users uh, tell us that uh, they're not even used to getting a daily weather forecast and they get a mobile device in a particular part of the world for the first time and now they have a daily and, and hourly weather forecast and in some parts of the world with our unique minicast technology, a minute by minute forecast for rainfall. So for many folks in new parts of the in developing nations, we're able to provide new capabilities that they've never had before. And that's very exciting and something that we're very passionate about and something that will help contribute even more value um, in the future. And I would also say these other areas I think we're very passionate about as well, these intersections of other science disciplines. It's always interesting to explore those, see what kind of predictability is there and what it can mean in terms of delivering real-time information that's valuable to users. Well, gentlemen, it's been totally fascinating to speak with you both today. Uh, Each episode on the Next Step Microsoft podcast, we like to end with a question about a personal recommendation you guys might have, whether it be a book or a movie or a website or a TV show. Uh, Drew, is there anything you want to recommend to our listeners? Yeah, uh, this... My first instinct is to recommend this book by Peter Thiel called Zero to One. I think it's relatively well known in the technology world. But for me, that was, uh, it's totally outside. You know, it's not ecology. It's not, uh, I just uh, came across it because I went to a conference and they were giving it away. And it's, for me, it's an amazing insight into how Silicon Valley and actually more broadly kind of West Coast of the US up to Microsoft in Seattle and Amazon, et cetera, have have changed the world. Um, You know, not just through the technology, but through the mindset of trying to take big, problems in the world and just really do something completely different and completely new. I just found it completely fascinating insight into the whole world of technology that's changed all of our lives so much. All of those companies that are part of our everyday lingo, including Microsoft, but because, you know, many others have, you know, Facebook and Google and the rest. And I thought it was, a, it was an amazing but inspiring book. Yeah, I'd really recommend that to anyone. How about you, John? I just recently read The Click Moment, uh, Seizing Opportunity in an Unpredictable World by uh, Franz uh, Johansson. And well, that really got my mind thinking about new ways to truly leverage all the opportunities that we have in today's dynamic and complex world and seizing those opportunities quickly, taking advantage of them and leveraging randomness in a new way. So uh, that's something that comes to mind. 
Cool. That is the click moment. The is click moment. All right. Well, thanks so much, John. Uh, John Porter is Vice President of Innovation and Development at AccuWeather. Thanks for joining us today on the Next to Microsoft podcast. It's been a real pleasure and uh, enjoyed the conversation. Drew Purvis is head of the Computational Ecology and Environmental Science Group at Microsoft Research. Drew, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, David. You can find all the episodes of this podcast at microsoft.com slash next. And to keep up with all the innovation at Microsoft, go to blogs.microsoft.com slash next. You can also email us with feedback for the podcast at next at microsoft.com. That's the word next, the at symbol, and then microsoft.com. This podcast was hosted and produced by me, David Chen, executive produced by Steve Clayton, Richard Eckel, and Jennifer Henshaw. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you guys later.